You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the summer of 1947, a rancher in Roswell, New Mexico, found debris on his property that he couldn't identify. He alerted the sheriff, who contacted the local Air Force base. What happened next would entrance the public with thoughts of flying disks of unknown origin for the next three quarters of a century. And that's because it's been built up over some 50 years as this truly significant event, regardless of any of the reality associated with that event. Because, for reasons we'll get into, the public came to doubt the initial claim that the unrecognized material was a crashed weather balloon. And the doubts didn't go away. Suspicions about what really happened in Roswell became ingrained on the public. You could say that the aliens arrived and never left. Well, today, the officials tasked with addressing the true nature of UFOs are members of Pentagon intelligence agencies and, a new addition, folks at NASA who've launched their own investigations. Can their efforts do what has always seemed out of reach? Provide satisfying answers about the true identity of strange objects that seemingly cruise our skies? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we provide a flyby of the history of UFO sightings, the latest efforts by the Pentagon and NASA to understand what they are, and ask what role wanting to believe has played in our interpretation of the evidence. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, Understanding UAPs. Could it be that in a galaxy of a trillion planets, Earth is the only place hosting intelligent life? Many people think that intelligence could be widespread, but that's different than saying that intelligence is visiting us, although 100 million Americans believe that to be the case. The Pentagon released its report on UFO sightings today, saying an additional 366 sightings have been investigated since 2021. This widespread belief is primarily responsible for the interest in the new UFO studies, but it's important to point out that they are not the first investigations into possible alien visitation. And when we look at the long history of UFO sightings and the official response to them, we see patterns that extend to the present day. Believe it or not, there was a time when speculating about alien visitation was not a ubiquitous part of our culture. Here's when it all began. Months before the Roswell incident, frequently called the crash at Roswell, something had happened that intrigued the public about the possibility of alien spacecraft. 
In the early summer of 1947, an amateur pilot named Kenneth Arnold claimed he saw nine unusual objects flying in formation in the skies of the Pacific Northwest. Mr. Arnold described them to a reporter as shaped like boomerangs and skipping across the skies the way that saucers skip across water. In the following months, after the article appeared, there was a wave of public sightings of unknown objects, now referred to as flying saucers. Then in July came the crash 60 miles northwest of the sleepy farming and ranching town of Roswell, New Mexico, also home to an Air Force base. The official story from the Air Force about what rancher W.W. Brazel had found on his property changed and changed again. And that shifting narrative planted a seed of public distrust. A belief that flying saucers were visiting Earth and occasionally crashing became firmly embedded, like a burr deep in the scruff of a dog. And the more we pulled, the more entangled it became. That's because the changing stories from the government made people think something was being covered up. Paul Hynek, the son of the late astronomer J. Allen Hynek, who was involved in the early Air Force UFO investigations, reminds us about the role that those early studies, projects Mogul, Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, played in priming us for this moment. First UFO sighting, although they weren't called UFOs at that time, the investigations into what these sightings might be uh, were manifold. I mean, it wasn't just Project Blue Book. There was Project Grudge, Project Sign, and so forth and so on. Why were there so many of them, and how did they differ? Well, we, we tend to think of the, the United States government as one monolithic block that acts in concert and cohesion, and nothing is further from the truth. There are all these battling fiefdoms, and people have very different attitudes about what you know this potential threat was to the public. So the first one, as you mentioned, was Project Sign, which was a, a pretty... Uh, neutral, had a pretty neutral outlook to the phenomena. And there are some apparent documents, estimate of the situation, for example, in 1947, that had a remarkably open attitude towards the phenomena. Then Project Grudge, the aptly named Project Grudge, came along. It basically said, no, go away, nothing to see here. And then Project Blue Book came along, I think because the Air Force knew they needed to at least make some apparent efforts to solving the phenomena. And the fact that it lasted 20 years, where Project Sign and Grudge lasted only a couple years, is a testament to the concern that they had that they were losing the public relations battle. Uh, suppose I get tapped to be involved with Project Blue Book because I'm an atmospheric physicist or something like that. How, how does the investigation of these things actually proceed? What do they do? So that's a good question. I will have to take sort of a hypothetical average because the cases, as far as I know, were handled very differently from slipshod rubber stamp explanation to the scientific advisor, who's my father, and the military director going to the actual site, investigating or talking with witnesses and seeing if there's any corroborating evidence, whether it's radar, any type of ground disturbance, etc., and then checking with the various astronomical movements and if there are any other military craft in the sky that they could get access to inf information about. What was a typical sighting, uh, if you will, bit of evidence that these various programs investigated? There, there's so many. It runs the whole gamut. Atmospheric anomalies, lightning, things like that. It could be the moon. It could be a planet. It could be a weather balloon. Those made up a bulk of the sightings. There are, of course, reports of things that don't seem to adhere to laws of physics or of planetary trajectories. So we can't say what those are. They're, they remain unidentified. 
but there was such a range of things. You know, the vast majority of them were fairly easily identifiable upon analysis. So, did they make a report? Did they come to some conclusion? Yeah. So, Project Blue Book officially investigated over its twenty-year tenure about twelve thousand four hundred cases. Of those, they couldn't explain about five percent or seven hundred odd cases. Even though some people called Project Blue Book the Society for the Explanation of the Uninvestigated. But isn't it the case, Paul, that you know the people on these panels were not just you know randomly chosen from the public or even from the military, but you know there were a lot of academics and the presidents of universities. I mean, this was a fairly uh, serious investigation. These things. Uh, eventually, yes, they became that way. Serious in that they had a lot of academics and military, but all through Project Blue Book, which is the longest-lasting of the Air Force's investigative studies, they weren't really trying to find out what was going on, but it was more of a PR exercise. Now, there may well have been other organs of the United States government, like the Air Intelligence Service Squadron, that was tasked with finding perhaps crashed saucers from wherever they may be. But the most public-facing efforts from the Air Force were, to my father's great chagrin, not serious scientific endeavors. So, all right, they make the report, and what was the conclusion of the report? I mean, you know, just a series of explanations for individual sightings, or did they make a general conclusion from all this? Well, the general conclusion would be in the Condon Committee report. That was in 1969, which is sort of what led to the uh, disbanding of Project Blue Book. And the, the abstract, the conclusion of the report was that basically there's nothing to see here. But that was at variance with the actual data in the report, where there were some compelling cases that couldn't be explained even with expert analysis. Again, that doesn't mean anything but that they're unidentified. But the public still suspected that something was being covered up. I mean, why? Sure, because uh, let's say there's 12,000 cases and the Air Force explains 11,000, some of them. Just because the Air Force trots out an explanation doesn't mean that the people who reported them or the people they talked to necessarily agreed with it. Okay, but I mean, is there any indication, you know, either by secret follow-ups or something like that, that the military was taking this more seriously than, you know, was reported? Yes, the military has been taking it seriously, and there's been ongoing investigative bodies in various branches of the military to this day. So, Paul, when did aliens uh, become implicated, as it were, in uh, these phenomena in the skies? So, you know, the modern era of ufology, as it were, started with Kenneth Arnold in in the late 40s and Roswell, even though Roswell really wasn't a well-known case until many years later. But it was the 40s and the 50s, and then really a lot in the 60s, and especially in the 70s, a veritable explosion of reports of inhabitants and visitors along with the crafts. So, Paul, what was there uh, that was special about the the atmosphere? Well, not the atmosphere, perhaps, but at least, you know, the public milieu in the late 1940s that would encourage the, the possibility that what they were seeing were alien craft. I mean, why did that take hold of the public? Well, my father at the time thought it was post-war hysteria, that we'd been so conditioned to be afraid of things from the sky And now you take away, you know, the German and Japanese boogeymen. Well, you still have that residual fear. That's what he felt at the time, that people had been so conditioned to be afraid and they just substituted a new interplanetary boogeyman. Maybe not so surprising, given that after the war, 
you know, there were more things in the sky. Uh, that was just the march of technology. So, and, and more you know, observational could, capabilities, too. Okay. So, so maybe if you're kind of skeptical that we're actually being visited, you would say, yeah, not surprised that more people are reporting things in the sky. Yeah. And also, you've got a lot of cases around nuclear facilities but I think that could be observational bias because you have a lot more facilities to look in the skies around nuclear facilities. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I must say, I, I question why any aliens would be particularly interested in our nuclear facilities. Uh, I, I, I don't think that that would impress them much, but uh, that's just me. All right. Is there anything special about the 1970s that led to this resurgence of interest in UFOs? It's a good question. I, I think in part it might have been you had sort of growing distrust of the government. This is after the Vietnam War and the peace movement. And I think people were feeling a lot more independent and not feeling like they needed to look to the government for answers and a little bit more empowered to make their own determinations. So, Paul, how do you see the current investigations into UAPs and the requirements that the military intelligence agencies provide Congress with reports and so forth? How, how does that fit in with the historical investigations? Well, the public disclosures by various branches of the government regarding what they call UAPs is certainly much more open than the Air Force was during Project Blue Book. Uh, it's a much different atmosphere. And now we've got the law that's passed that that's mandating that all branches of the military and the intelligence community release all information that they have. So it's a much more ostensibly open environment and attitude than we've seen before. Finally, do you still want to believe or have you uh, decided that there's nothing here to be believed? It's not really a question of belief. It's a question of, of evidence and how much evidence there is. Um, you've made a very good point in one of the presentations I've seen you give about why would they come here and essentially scare Farmer Brown at night and maybe diddle around in the cornfield? Okay. It's so hard to find us. The universe is so vast. Why would they come here and not do something more overt and public than the kind of furtive encounters that are reported? So I don't, those are big issues for me. And yet we still have a lot of compelling cases that seem to go beyond a simple misidentification of Venus. So for me, I'm at the point where I see there's compelling evidence to suggest there's something beyond our current knowledge base that's happening, but I don't feel I have to ascribe an answer to that. So I see something, it's inconvenient, there's something happening, I believe, but I don't know what it is, where they're from, etc. And extraterrestrial really doesn't feel like it um, explains a phenomena, nor makes any sense to me. Paul Hynek, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Paul Hynek teaches at Pepperdine University. Here's the thing about UFOs. There is nothing unusual about seeing something you cannot identify flying through the sky. Until you identify it, it is unidentified. But how we choose to interpret the ambiguity can feed the belief in alien visitation. Coming up, how does the deep-seated psychology of our desire to believe shape our interpretation of what we are seeing? This is Skeptic Check, understanding UAPs on Big Picture Science.
Hey, Big Picture Science listeners, I'm Hiba Ali, host of the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast. This season, we're reimagining global governance at a historic inflection point. Amid climate change, COVID-19, the invasion of Ukraine, we're asking how a more equitable world order could help us better address the challenges of our time. Is there a viable alternative to the United Nations? That is not a Security Council. That is a United Nations Insecurity Council. And it clearly has to be dismantled. Is there a different way of managing global public goods like vaccines? What global public investment suggests is that all countries should contribute. Now that sounds incredibly radical. And how is a small island nation like Barbados revolutionizing climate financing? But we say there are five things that you can do that if you did those achievable things, it would actually redraw the global financial system. Want to better understand how we can solve global challenges more effectively? Search for The New Humanitarian wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Since at least the time of the ancient Greeks, humans have believed that the stars were home to aliens, that extraterrestrial life was out there somewhere. So when private pilot Kenneth Arnold suggested that maybe they were visiting Earth, he was actually tapping into an old desire to believe that we are not alone. And it helped set off a new wave of interest, ufology. Now, just to be clear, efforts such as we pursue here at the SETI Institute, where we try to eavesdrop on signals from other worlds, there are good science reasons for thinking we're not alone and that aliens exist. But that's different from believing that aliens are regularly and currently visiting Earth. A few years ago, Seth and I took a road trip to Roswell for an episode called Road Trip to Roswell. We went to the New Mexico town and visited the touristy areas, including the UFO Museum. I should say the entire downtown is devoted to the idea of alien visitation. Well, now that we've passed the 75th anniversary of the Roswell crash, we have an excuse to revisit our highlights from that trip. For example, when we chatted about why Roswell is the heart and soul of UFO belief. What's the mythology of Roswell? How did it become such a mythical place? Yeah, well, see, the thing is that if you talk to anyone who is convinced that uh, some of the UFOs that are seen are actually alien craft. And you say, what was the most significant incident in the whole history of UFOs since the Second World War? Well, they will usually say Roswell. I mean, it is the iconic UFO story. It's the most famous one. And it is the one that many people apparently think is the best evidence that we're being visited. 
why, why is it that we stopped? The car is idling. We stopped in the middle of the highway because a man is holding a stop sign. Seth, I can't see another car in the other direction for 50 miles. I see nothing. Oh, wait. There's a dot on the horizon. Do you think that's why we stopped? It's a moving dot. Yeah, well, they're doing some sort of construction here. It could be. Maybe this is just a freelance guy who's out here with a stop sign, and this is sort of a hobby of his. <laughs> There's only two cars out here. <laughs> so so say a little bit more about, about Roswell. Some people are obsessed with it. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Excuse me while I have some more of these non-trans fat popcorn kernels. Indeed, Roswell has become absolutely celebrated because... Unlike so many of the sightings of supposed alien craft, which are lights in the sky that move in peculiar ways and so forth and so on, in Roswell, you know, supposedly the aliens actually fell to Earth. They actually crashed. So it's a very special story. And not only do they claim that, you know, the government recovered pieces of the craft, but that they recovered some actual aliens. That's part of the story, too. So it's a much more interesting story. People write you at the SETI Institute, and they talk about Roswell, don't they? They do. And occasionally, when people write in and don't oh, mention maybe, any particular... Maybe I should get out of the way for this car. Well, I don't know. <laughs> so this is, these are the cars that we were waiting for. They were on the horizon a half hour ago. Yeah. All right, all right. But time moves slower in the desert. I'm fine. That's fine. I'm fine. So we're back on the road again. Pilot car, follow me. All right, we'll do that. Uh, indeed, people do call up. And they have their various viewpoints on the real status of what UFOs might be to tell to me. But I always say, look, I'm rather skeptical that we're being visited. But if you think we are, tell me what you think is the best case of uh, some sort of alien craft visiting Earth. And I think like eight out of ten of them will say Roswell. So this is the mothership of alien UFO stories. So to speak, yes. Good times, Molly. (laughs) Well, as the myth of Roswell grew... So did its association with conspiracy. Many of the groups investigating the crash and subsequent sightings were amateur sleuths. Their view of the military and scientific communities was that, well, they were elitist groups prone to secrecy. Now, the timing of the Roswell crash fueled that growing mistrust, as we learn. On our trip, we spoke with retired history teacher Dennis Versteinen from the National Museum of Nuclear Science in Albuquerque. The military was going to keep its action secret at all costs, even if it meant risking a rumor floating around or evidence of government secrecy floating around and everything. This meant those who had one opinion of the event had the ear of the press. Those who had another opinion couldn't speak up, lest they violate their security clearances. Sounds like you're saying, too, that the area, of just because of everything that was going on with politics and so forth, and then science was really ripe for a kind of susceptibility to the idea that there was a crash of an alien ship at Roswell. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Historically, it's also a period when people are just beginning to come grips with the kind of advanced science that emerged from the war. It's a very complex, it's a very secret science, and it's a very, even when it's explained, as we try to explain here at the museum, uh, nuclear physics is extremely difficult to explain. There was also a period when people in the movies were perpetuating views of the science of the time. You know, in this country, the evil scientist always has a proper lab, and the scientists are always portrayed as long hairs, uh, kind of weird, so not caring. Mad, the, mad scientist type. Yeah, the mad scientist with the uh, Jacob's ladder going off behind him saying, he's alive, he's alive. And that's the American view of science, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm afraid, in my personal view, there's still some of that today. But how does the suspicion about science then, then play into the uh, myth about uh, aliens crashing in Roswell? Well, I can understand the suspicion Ros- about other things. Yeah, well, you know, you don't have similar stories before the war. 
And part of the reason is it wasn't in the public imagination before the war. What so wasn't what in the public imagination? Oh, the idea of aliens. The idea of aliens, the idea of space travel and spacecraft. This was just building in the 30s. And then when the war is over, this fascinating new science, this earth-shaking new science comes out. Uh, you don't hear stories of strange objects prior to 47. Yeah, the idea of those Jacob's Ladders, you know, those sparks that climb up a couple of metal rods. I built one of those once. Uh, didn't put me in touch with any aliens, but thinking back on this trip and these stories, I can't help but see the similarities between Roswell and, you know, more recent sightings. Many of the people most invested in the current claims have a strong belief that aliens have already visited, and anyone who disagrees is either being obtuse or is part of the cover-up. Oh, and one other thing. You know, the crash was not in Roswell itself. We were visiting the town of Corona, which is like 60 miles northwest of Roswell, and that's actually where the crash debris was found. Well, Molly, we're just outside of Corona. We're coming up to the crash site. Now, we could pull over and take a look. Okay, yeah, so just show me where I should pull over. Maybe right here? Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, sure. Let's take a look. Okay, so we're standing out here. There's not much around us except for ranches, ranch land, and yeah. one, one highway. Yeah, low hills uh, not too far away with scrub on them, and that's kind of it. I mean, it looks like a lot of New Mexico. Nothing so, special. so this is the crash site, or the crash site was near here? Yeah, yeah. It's actually on the Foster Ranch, and this guy Braswell found it. And it's just over there. I mean, if you were going to land on Earth, there's nothing special about this place. Uh, we can't go into the property. It's private property. Yeah, it's private property. It's, you know, being used for making cows bigger. So what happened? A rancher came out and he found something on his property well, here? exactly. He found something. I mean, there was some foil and there were these wooden beams and some what looked like destroyed rubber fabric and funny geometric shapes and, and all this stuff that doesn't really belong on a ranch. And uh, so, he, you know, he thought, well, what the heck is this? Whatever it was, it had a profound effect on American culture. Here to describe that and what exactly crashed in the desert in 1947 is historian Roger Launius. He was a civil historian with the United States Air Force and is a former chief historian for NASA. Obviously, uh, the possibilities of extraterrestrial visitation are things that people are intrinsically interested in. I mean, a fundamental question in science is, are we alone in the universe? And we don't know the answer to that yet. There's, uh, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no evidence to support one position over another. And in that context, since we do know that there are multiple solar systems, multiple galaxies, um, multiple planets, maybe some of them like Earth, the question is, could life have evolved on those other places? And once, once you ponder that, then you ask the next question is, is there life out there with which we might communicate? And perhaps they're visiting us, because we know we're not visiting them, at least not yet. So it is a scientific question um, drawn on what we understand about uh, the uh, physics and the chemistry of the universe. But then there's those that believe or want to believe that that intelligent life is actually visiting us now. And that's where I think the scientists and some of the UFO believers or the alien, the ufologists part ways. Well, sure. Um, while science and ufology are two fundamentally separate things, they have one common interest, and that is uh, to get to the issues of the truth. But when you try to get to the truth, the question is, what is the evidence that you're going to, to accept and what makes sense in that context? 
the extent to which you refer to it anymore, I don't know if you do anymore, probably you don't really want to talk about it anymore, you have so many times, but do you call it the crash at Roswell, the Roswell Air Base incident? What's the nomenclature? Well, I, I, I usually refer to it as the Roswell incident. And why is it called the Roswell incident when it occurred in Corona, New Mexico? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it took place in and around Roswell. You know, the story is a rancher who found these objects out in his ranch uh, outside of, of, of Roswell, obviously, quite a distance outside to be, be exact. But the activities associated with the rancher bringing that into the sheriff and the sheriff and the local military officials, that's a Roswell confined story there. And as some say, it may be the best thing that ever happened to Roswell in terms of the tourism that it brought in in the decades that followed. So in that way, Roswell won out and, and maybe Corona, not so much. Well, Roger, let's get to um, what actually happened. Uh, the metallic and I believe rubber debris that was found on the farmer's field, what actually had crashed? Well, the best evidence suggests that this was a part of uh, a larger effort that the Department of Defense was engaged in, uh, and, and not just the Department of Defense. I mean, the CIA has a role in this, and what they were doing was placing balloons in the upper atmosphere uh, with listening devices to detect a nuclear blast. They knew that the Russians, the Soviet Union, was engaged in the development of, of atomic bombs as well, and they wanted to know as quickly as possible when the Russians had those. And so these listening devices were put into the upper atmosphere and floated on balloons. Uh, and there were many of them that were deployed in this way to uh, listen for an atomic blast. That's what it was about, and then to communicate that information back to a listening post. Why didn't the military just tell the public that? I believe that the military first said it was a weather balloon, or maybe first said it was a flying saucer and then a weather balloon, but they, they kept changing their story. Why not just come clean what was going on? Well, the concern about that was uh, they didn't want to tell the Russians that they had the capability to understand this particular activity. So if there are these listening devices that are out there, and they, and they, if, they saw, if they said it to the American public, the Russians know about it already. And uh, as a result of that, and that gives them a, a line on what kind of technology is available that the United States is accessing to try to determine these sorts of things. And they, they didn't want to tell anybody about that. It's better to have a cover story from their perspective. You know, in hindsight, you may say that's the, that was the wrong call, but uh, they believed it was important to have a cover story and even an outrageous one uh, that was better than the truth in this instance because of the national security secrets associated with the Cold War. The military and the UFO phenomena have been linked ever since. Is that a natural pairing because the Air Force has command of the skies? Or is it an unusual marriage, if you will, that the military and then kind of the, the, the sightings of UFOs have been intertwined in, this, in these multiple conspiracy theories? Well, I, th I think there's no accident that there's good reason for why the military had an interest in this. Uh, and it wasn't just the military. The CIA also had a, a technological uh, investigation uh, group that uh, was very concerned about these things, because not because they thought of them as something that was extraterrestrial, but they thought of them as something that if, you know, if you've got pilots who are seeing certain things, whatever they are, and you can't identify what they are, then 
is it possible that the Russians have some technology that the Americans were unaware of? And what threat does that pose to the United States in the Cold War? And, and it makes sense that they would want to understand that. So that's one of the reasons for the investigation. And it's important for all the listeners to understand how desperate this Cold War environment was. For people who did not uh, experience the Cold War, we don't necessarily think of it in the same way. But this was a confrontation to the death of one side or the other. There was going to be a winner and a loser. It was like two scorpions in a bottle. And without an appreciation of how, how serious this issue was, you can't really understand uh, the nature of the military uh, response to these concerns. Well, that's why we have historians to remind us, because we do have a kind of, if not historic amnesia, certainly an emotional amnesia. And we have to remember um, what the concerns and maybe neuroses, but what the concerns were of the of the era. Given that, Roger, do you think Roswell is still relevant culturally? We just passed its anniversary, so we're we're talking about it. Um, but does it does it still have the hold that it once did? Oh, I think it's got a greater hold than it had in the 1940s and 50s. And that's because it's been built up over some 50 years uh, as this truly significant event, regardless of any of the reality associated with that event. Uh, There's this mythology that's been built up about it. And quite frankly, over time, the story has gotten better as it has been retold and and embellished, I would contend. What, what is the craziest conspiracy that you've heard about alien visitation, either about Roswell or, or some other angle that, with, that has to do with aliens and UFOs? I think my personal favorite is that the uh, it's a version of the moon hoax conspiracy in which uh, the astronauts landed on the moon, but they found alien things there. And consequently, NASA uh, has spent the last 50 plus years hiding all of that. And as once the chief historian for NASA, can you confirm or deny that story. I can totally deny that story. <laughs> There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, it's uh, it's a fun story, uh, it, but doesn't bear any any truth, and it doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. And, and, and by the way, there's something else about this that, that I would like to say, and that's about UFOs in general. I spent 12 years working at NASA and uh, met a lot of scientists and, and people who have committed their lives to engaging in space exploration and learning about the mysteries of the universe, many of whom would like nothing better than to find some evidence of intelligent life visiting us or located in some other place. And we found none. And by the way, if they had found it, you couldn't keep them quiet. They would love to tell the story and they would do it no matter what. Well, Roger Lanius, what a pleasure it is to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Roger Launius is a former chief historian for NASA, and he's held numerous positions at the Smithsonian Institution, including chair of the Division of Space History at its National Air and Space Museum. Well, so Seth, we talked about how we wanted to address the way in which our desire to believe uh, shapes our interpretation of the evidence. And how would you say that the events of the 1940s shaped our desire to believe in aliens and how that has in turn shaped our interpretation of the evidence? Well, I think it's a confluence of both technology and science because we began to learn that, you know, 
more about the planets of our own solar system and also, you know, the suggestion that there might be other solar systems out there that, uh, you know, Earth might not be alone in the galaxy or the universe. So that's that point that Dr. Linnaeus said about our general desire to believe that we are not alone based on the scientific evidence. Well, on the evidence, but also something called the... uh, you know, the Copernican principle, if you will, that if you think you're special in some way, that our solar system is special in having a habitable world, you know, that's probably wrong because if you're special, that's, that's, that's well, special pleading, and that's not allowed in science. But it's that and also the other events that were happening in, the 19, in 1947, the atomic age, the fear of attack from above, and the, and the birth of the Cold War. Well, it's true. The atomic age uh, dawned in 1945 with the bombs dropped on Japan. And, uh, but there was also a growing interest in spaceflight because we were developing rockets, so ultimately for the military, but it was recognized right away by people like Werner von Braun, after all, who had a history of using rockets for military purposes. It was recognized early on that, in fact, they could be used to go to other worlds, at least in our solar system. And if we could do that, maybe the aliens were doing it too. And then it was reinforced by popular culture, by alien movies and the like, wasn't it? And this all gave us salient psychological reasons for believing that what we can identify are alien ships. It's certainly the case. There were a lot of uh, films made about aliens. Aliens were very handy bad guys for Hollywood because, after all, you could make them as bad as you wanted to, and they didn't ask for residuals or anything like that. So in the 50s, there was a whole series of films about aliens. Uh, There was also a whole series of films about creatures that, you know, got defrosted from underground and things like that. But, you know, these tropes of science fiction all made an appearance in the 1950s. But what's surprising about the Roswell story is it actually died down for a while and it came back in the 1970s. Why, Why is that? Well, that's because a fellow by the name of Stanton Freeman, who had actually worked for a while as a scientist, research scientist, uh, he dug up the story of Roswell, which indeed had just faded into oblivion, I guess you could say. But he he dug it up and he gave it some uh, new flourish. He wrote a book, and uh, you know the truth about Roswell kind of book, and uh, that uh, that gained traction with the public. everything old is new again. Will yet another Pentagon report finally provide answers to the question of mysterious objects in our airspace? Will the involvement of NASA help us figure this out? That and more next on Skeptic Check Understanding UAPs on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts.
That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. At a Pentagon press conference in 1952, Major General John A. Samford addresses the subject of flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. This was the year of the launch of Project Blue Book, what would become the longest of the UFO studies to date. In pursuit of this obligation since 1947, we have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them, explain them to our own satisfaction. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. I'm struck by his line about the attempt to resolve so-called incredible observations. That continues to the present time. The military has been involved in the investigation of UFOs ever since. The Air Force officials examined the puzzling material collected at that ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. But some of the names and some of the players have changed. For one, UFOs are now called UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, at least by the Department of Defense in its most recent investigations. Over the last five years, the Pentagon has released several reports about sightings made mostly by Navy and Air Force pilots. The conclusions of those studies are echoed in yet another report released in January of 2023. Its summary in a word about most of the objects, unremarkable. This analysis comprised of 366 sightings, was carried out by the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO, the group that succeeded the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, or UAPTF, a program within the Office of Naval Intelligence that had issued a report in 2021. Clearly, the government needs a few more acronyms. What the most recent AARO study found, at least half the objects where balloons, drones, and everyday trash like plastic bags. But that means half the objects were not identified. The Pentagon calls them uncharacterized, with some appearing to, quote, have demonstrated unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities. What does that mean, Seth? Well, that means in the videos that you can find online and many other places, uh, you, you might see what looks like an object in the distance suddenly you know, take off to the left or the right side of the uh, frame. And that's uh, a, an unusual performance capability. I mean, if you take any aircraft, it can't really do that. Suddenly, you know, have uh, almost infinite acceleration, right? Because that requires almost infinite force. So it's uh, kind of non-physical. Isn't that evidence by itself that no, it because is an alien craft or some <laughs> unusual craft? Not necessarily. I mean, it may be all an optical illusion. You think that it's taking off at high speed, but maybe it isn't very far away. And so any movement at all might look like it's enormously fast, but might not really be enormously fast. But this means that we have yet another military study that can identify many, but not all of the objects. And that is intriguing. And so the analysis continues. But now another group is getting involved. 
It's one known more for landing humans on the moon and robotic hardware on Mars. But in a recent press conference, Daniel Evans, Assistant Deputy Associate Administrator for Research at NASA's Science Mission Directorate, announced that the agency has convened its own UAP investigative panel. We plan on bringing together some of the country's leading scientists, aeronautics experts, and data practitioners. We expect the study to kick off in the early fall. It should take about nine months to complete. This 16-person group made up of scientists, technologists, a journalist, and an astronaut will create a blueprint for future investigations as well. NASA has also expanded the definition of UAP to include unidentified anomalous phenomena. Seth, what would that be? Well, uh, anomalous just means that it's not obvious what it is, I suppose, right? I mean, you see something up in the sky and it's moving around in, in ways that, uh, you know, you don't expect or that aren't congruent with aircraft or, you know, rockets or stuff like that. And you say, well, it's anomalous. So why, I mean, how does it improve or expand on aerial? Well, to begin with, some of these phenomena are actually seen in bodies of water, like the ocean, right? So that's not aerial. Uh, and, and anomalous phenomena, of course, could be anything that just doesn't have a ready explanation. So I guess they wanted to make the bucket as big as they could. Could you think of an anomalous phenomena that happens in the sky? That's not a plane or something like that. Well, I mean, if, if you see something moving across the sky that's, you know, not clearly a Earth satellite or a rocket or something like that, you would say, well, I don't know what that is. So it's anomalous. Well, NASA hasn't yet released specifics about their investigation, but at the press conference, NASA Associate Administrator Thomas Zerbuchen suggested that the agency's first job was to collect better data. The study will focus on identifying available data, how to best uh, collect future data, and how NASA can use these data to move the scientific understanding of UAPs forward. A short way I would talk about that is take a field that is relatively data poor and uh, to make it into a field that is much more data rich and therefore uh, worthy of scientific investigation and analysis. Usually when you're trying to explain something, uh, <laughs> there, there's often, the, the, if you will, the escape to we need more data because uh, if it isn't obvious what it is that you've discovered or found or observed, then, you know, what do you do about it? Well, you collect more data and see if it, the picture becomes clearer. But but hasn't the Pentagon already done that? I mean, certainly the Pentagon has collected a lot of data. Well, what's a lot of data? I mean, you know, how, much, how many data do you need in order to explain what you're seeing? Remember, NASA is concerned with things that might be in space, right? So it may be collecting the kind of data that the uh, Pentagon is not so interested in. The Pentagon is interested in things that might be in our airspace, things that could be aircraft or missiles or stuff like that. Uh, but on the other hand, NASA might be interested in things that are, you know, cosmic, even if they're only meteors or stuff like that, but things that could come from deep space. I'm struck by what we heard about this being a scientific investigation, uh, somewhat in contrast to what Paul Hynek said that his father lamented about the Air Force studies, uh, those conducted in the 1940s and 50s. They weren't particularly scientific, not scientific enough. Sounds like NASA's involvement might change that. Well, NASA knows something about space and it does have impressive technology, but does this mean that we might finally put an end to the mystery of what's in our skies? What do you think? I think we will not do that, actually, because although, you know, some things can be explained, there are always going to be some things that are not explained. And from the public's point of view, they kind of like the idea that there's some sort of 
you know, conspiracy here to hide information. If they believe that, well, everything that the government is saying about this is, you know, is, is straightforward and, and explains what we see, then the subject sort of loses a lot of its interest. So if you call me cynical, but I think that the, there will always be some claim of, of uh, cover-up. And you really think that there's something that is in our skies that we do not have the, the tools as humans, as human species, to explain? I, I personally doubt that. I think that we have all the tools that we need to explain things we see in our skies. But just because you have the tools doesn't mean that they get used, right? You need the right kind of observations and you need, you know, whatever. And in fact, that's the basis of some projects such as the uh, Galileo project being run out of Harvard University to build new instruments to monitor things in the sky that have been previously considered somewhat mysterious. Well, Seth, the military and all of us clearly have an interest in monitoring our airspace. You know, we want to know what's there. And also anything entering the atmosphere. Why can't NASA or some of these other agencies just look at satellite observations and catch the culprits that are involved that are sneaking into our atmosphere? Well, most of these satellites are either looking down or they're looking up at stuff far away. So they don't necessarily see stuff, you know, entering our atmosphere. I mean, it's very difficult to monitor everything that might be entering the Earth's atmosphere. You know, there's like a, a, I don't know, tons of material that enter the atmosphere every day, you know, mostly dust, but also small rocks and things like that. We don't monitor all of that. We can't. So there's always a possibility for things that we haven't uh, figured out. But NASA does monitor asteroid threats, for example. Yeah, but asteroids are a different kind of thing. Asteroids are usually observed when they're far away from the Earth, right? They're not entering the atmosphere. They're, they're picked up, you know, at great distance, maybe as far away as Mars or Jupiter. So that's a slightly different problem. Well, if anyone is wondering why NASA would want to step into the UFO fray, Dr. Zerbuchen suggested that the agency sees it as an opportunity with science benefit. Unidentified phenomena in the atmosphere of interest for both, for many reasons, uh, frankly, I think there's new science to be discovered. Uh, there's been many times where something that looked almost magical turned out to be a new scientific effect. But uh, there's also uh, national security and air safety issues that have been discussed elsewhere that, of course, relate to these observations. And establishing, uh, uh, you know, with events that are, whether they're natural or whether they are kind of uh, need to be explained otherwise, is very much aligned with NASA's goals uh, that uh, ensure, of course, uh, you know, that we discover the unknown, but also ensures the safety of aircraft that, of course, are in that airspace. Okay, so these are observations that have, you know, been of limited extent in the past. If you are, have better capability of monitoring whatever it is that falls to Earth, maybe you learn something of interest scientifically, right? Maybe you learn something about the distribution of uh, small rocks in the solar system or something like that. Well, um, this brings us to the big picture question, Seth. What happens if, when NASA undertakes this UAP study, the agency, even with its advanced tools, cannot identify those remaining unidentified objects. Is it logical to conclude that they are alien craft? No, I, I don't think you can say that a negative result proves <laughs> your hypothesis, right? It's just a negative result. You haven't, you know, it's like 
I mean, it's like not solving a murder, right? You could say, well, we couldn't solve that one, so I guess it was probably committed by, you know, wild geese or something like that. I mean, you know, you can make any hypothesis you want. So if you don't have any positive evidence, if you don't have any evidence that you can point to and say, this is evidence of this, that, and the other, then it's just, you know, it's still a puzzle. So if someone came to you, Seth, and said, and they have come to you and said this, um, I have evidence, indisputable evidence that aliens are you know, zipping around our skies, what would you want from them? What would you want them to produce? And what would be considered hard evidence? Yeah, well, very good photographs would certainly be a, a, a boon. But if not that, then some physical evidence, maybe an ashtray from an alien spacecraft or something, you know, just something physical that you could test in a lab and say, you know what, this is not a compound that I recognize. This is something different. I hope that the aliens do not smoke and therefore do not have ashtrays. I'd like to think that they're smarter than that, that they're more intelligent than we are. Well, at least they're keeping the interior of their spacecraft relatively neat. Do you think the aliens are visiting us regularly? No. Well, that brings us to one final point, is this cycle that we hinted at at the top of the show. The repetition that we are seeing is reflected in this relationship between people's beliefs and these studies. And it seems to be that the public belief is solidified with each government investigation because there is always that little piece that can't be explained. And that's what they latch on to. I think the problem here is that for many in the public, they conflate something that's unexplained with something being unexplainable. And those are two different things. Well, this show would not be possible without the extraordinary but earthly talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that looked at the history of trying to identify what's unidentified in our skies is called Skeptic Check Understanding UAPs. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.